Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, March 3rd. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thank you for joining us. In our top story tonight, we actually have two stories of pro-lifers whose First Amendment rights have been upheld by different courts. We have Mr. Timothy Bells, an attorney who represented one of these pro-lifers with us tonight. Teresa will tell you about a new Fox News poll about what the most important issues are facing the country and all of the political happenings in political news in a nutshell. Leslie's segment, Abortion in the News, is jam-packed with stories, including the ironic statement from New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Be sure to stay till the end when Anthony Vassone joins us to take you on the road with Priests for Life. Our top story tonight is actually two stories, both involving pro-lifers whose First Amendment rights have been upheld by different courts. The first victory came from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit involving a 2019 law passed in New York State called the Boss Bill. Chris Lattery is the founder and president of Expectant Mother Care EMC Frontline Pregnancy Centers in New York City. The Boss Bill represented a threat to his organization and all pro-life organizations in the state. It's a complicated situation, so we've invited Chris's attorney, Timothy Bells, from the Thomas More Society to explain how significant this victory was. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Nice to be here. Tim, what is the Boss Bill and how did it impact Expectant Mother Care? Well, all of us are used to seeing notices in our lunchrooms that say uh, workplace discrimination is forbidden if it's based on religion, national origin, race, color, sex. And now there have been other things added, you know, gender identity, um, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not by the federal government yet, but um, but state and local governments have had those other categories in there. And um, New York in 2019 decided to add another category called reproductive health decision. It's really an awkward thing to say, but they, they added that to the typical things that we know of as religion, national origin, race, color, sex, et cetera. In short, what that meant was that if you have an employee who has had an abortion or who has an abortion uh, while she's working for you, um, uh, uh, you cannot discriminate against her either in hiring or in deciding whether to fire her. Uh, we, you know, we don't uh, know of anybody who makes uh, it front and, uh, and center when they're interviewing someone to, say, to ask them if they've ever had an abortion. But you can see that for Chris Slattery and Evergreen, this caused a, a real issue because um, they couldn't have counselors telling women uh, that they shouldn't have an abortion, that they should have their baby instead. Um, they couldn't have that and then have one of their counselors be pregnant one day and show up the next day not pregnant with no explanation. Um, and so uh, obviously actions speak louder than words and you can't have counselors 
um, that um, that uh, uh, advocate against abortion, but have one themselves. So can you tell us about the lawsuit you filed in the district court in New York and how it ended up in the Second Circuit? Yes, we um, we went to New York. We couldn't find uh, local lawyers who wanted to work on it. I'm sure there are some, but we didn't ever find them. So we just decided as uh, Missouri lawyers that we would go get admitted. And we got admitted in the Northern District of of um, uh, New York in the district court, which is Albany, where the capital is. And so we, we sued the uh, governor, the attorney general, and the labor department up there. Um, and we, uh, we brought the very claim, of course, that the Second Circuit just upheld. But after, I think, really dealing with it, um, the district court decided against us. And that then we appealed that case to the Second Circuit in uh, New York City, argued it 15 months ago, and they issued their opinion this week in our favor. And, and what, what was that opinion? That opinion was that um, it, this is kind of getting down into the weeds a little bit, but it, it's worth it, I think. Um, if you are what the courts call an expressive association, that by that I mean a, an association that has First Amendment rights of speech, religion, uh, you might be an educational association, uh, a social society, a political uh, party. If you are an association that exercises First Amendment rights, um, then the government can interfere with your membership. And by membership, I just mean anybody associated with the association. The government can do that only if it first shows that it has a compelling government interest that can't be achieved more narrowly than they are trying to do with the law that they passed. And so what the Second Circuit did was pursuant to Supreme Court dictates, they said, we have to balance the importance of this case to Evergreen and Chris Slattery and the uh, uh, crisis pregnancy centers on the one hand, and the stated interest of the state of New York to prohibit discrimination for people who have an abortion. So they said, uh, on the one side, of the scale is the individual's right not to be discriminated against for having an abortion. On the other side is the First Amendment right of a particular association like Evergreen to advocate against having abortions. If Evergreen, the court said, if Evergreen had the right to exclude employees who have had an abortion, the right to be free of discrimination for having an abortion will be impaired only to the limited extent that such a person cannot join the specific group or groups that oppose abortion. In other words, there are a lot of jobs out there other than working for Evergreen. Mm -hmm. So uh, if the court finished by saying, if the state could require an association that expressly opposes abortion to accept members who engage in abortion, it would severely burden that organization's rights under the First Amendment.
So that's why we won. Um, I, I don't think that uh, the court could make it much more clear how they want this case to turn out. Well, Tim, now the case goes back to the district court, right? So what yes. do you anticipate happening there? Well, I'm not going to tell the district judge what to do, but, well, I guess that is my job, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to presuppose that he's going to rule our way, but I don't think the Second Circuit gave him a lot of wiggle room as to what to do when the case gets back. So does this case have national implications? Well, <laughs> um, you're talking to me and a lot of media has been talking to us. Uh, and I, you know, it's a lot of that's because it's the Second Circuit uh, sitting in Manhattan that issued this uh, ruling. Um, whether we like it or not, here in flyover country, um, uh, you know, when something happens in, in New York, it gets attention. And in addition to that, the Second Circuit is about as influential a court as you, as you can be if you're not going to be the United States Supreme Court. So, you know, it's the Supreme Court and right under that, it's the appeals courts and the Second Circuit is one of the most influential. So we hope and expect that we are building a body of law that will become the status quo nationwide. We won a case like this in St. Louis. It was almost identical uh, about four years ago. So um, we look forward to uh, uh, cementing this uh, throughout the country. And it doesn't just apply to uh, uh, reproductive um, health uh, in, the, in the context of the crisis pregnancy center. It applies to churches. When New York passed this law, they were told that they should uh, exempt churches. They did not. Imagine that. They didn't even exempt churches from this law. Wow. So um, this, this was also necessary for us to win because it protects churches and, and religious schools, et, et cetera. So there are a lot of beneficiaries of this other than crisis pregnancy centers. Well, Tim, we really um, thank you for your time and, and we hope you'll come back when there are more developments in this important case. Well, I'll be glad to come back. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. The other victory for life involves Mark Lee Dixon, the director of Right to Life of East Texas and the architect of the Sanctuary City Movement. As Mark works to encourage towns and cities to declare themselves sanctuaries for the unborn, he has written on social media about abortion and abortion funds, which are organizations that help women pray, uh, pay to end their pregnancies. In these posts, he has described abortion as murder and called the funds criminal organizations. Three separate abortion funds in two Texas counties sued Mark for defamation. The two appeals courts where the cases ended up was split on the decision sending the case to the Texas Supreme Court. That court ruled last week that the posts were protected by freedom of speech and dismissed the defamation suits. The funds were ordered to pay Mark's attorney's fees. We weren't able to get Mark on camera with us, but we did speak to him to get his reaction to the ruling. Mark said that for years he has been saying and writing that abortion is murder since it is the taking of an innocent human life. So he was surprised when he was sued for defamation. 
but he said he was prayerfully optimistic that the Texas Supreme Court would rule in his favor, and when it did, he called it a great victory for life. It certainly was a great victory, and we look forward to having Mark on again to update us on his work with Sanctuary Cities. A Fox News poll released Sunday found that the economy is the most important issue facing the country, according to almost four in 10 voters, with immigration and border security coming in a distant second. 5% of the voters say that abortion is the top priority. Democrats and Republicans agree, to varying degrees, that the economy is the top problem. But that's where the similarities end. For Democrats, the top issues are the economy, climate change, and guns, while for Republicans, only the economy and immigration and border security reach double digits. The political environment heading into the second election cycle is fluid, said Darren Shaw, a Republican who conducted this poll, along with Democrat Chris Anderson. The Republicans still hold the edge on the top issues, but the Democrats have broad support across a wide range of issues that seem to be rising in salience. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel announced in an email to party insiders that was obtained by NBC News that the Republican presidential candidates will meet for their first debate of the 2024 campaign cycle this August in Milwaukee. The exact date and criteria for participation are not yet set, but the event will coincide with the RNC's summer meeting and continue a tradition of holding the first debate in the same city that will host the GOP convention the following year. The RNC previously selected Milwaukee as the site of the 2024 nominating confab. At this time, no other debates have been sanctioned, nor has the final criteria for the first debate been decided, McTaniel wrote in an email to the members. The committee will continue its work and will release updates as they become available. McDaniel added, we have a long way to go, but I am confident we will be able to showcase our eventual nominee in a world-class fashion. Chicago's pro-abortion mayor, Democrat Lori Lightfoot, has lost her bid for re-election as the race heads to a runoff without her after no candidate reached the required 50% vote threshold to be elected. Lightfoot faced challenges from eight other candidates in the race, including Chicago Public Schools CEO and City Budget Director Paul Vallis, who held a significant double-digit lead in the polls ahead of Election Day. During her campaign, she was slammed by critics for blaming her dwindling re-election prospects on race and gender instead of the city's crime crisis. I'm a black woman, and let's not forget, some folks frankly don't support us in leadership roles, Lightfoot told The New Yorker recently. Lightfoot, who is the first mayor in 40 years to lose re-election, conceded her bid Tuesday, stating, I will be rooting and praying for the next mayor of Chicago. Crime was seen as the central theme of the race, and the city's soaring crime rate served as the backdrop to Lightfoot's dismal approval, according to one poll. She also faced sharp criticism for her less than cordial relationship with law enforcement throughout her tenure, which saw a drastic reduction in police officer headcount to coincide with the rise in crime. During her time in office, homicides in Chicago rose to their highest number in 25 years, according to police department records, outpacing New York City and Los Angeles. Florida Democrats took on tremendous losses last election cycle, and now a Republican state lawmaker wants to eliminate the party entirely with a bill filed Tuesday. The ultimate cancel act 
numbered SB 1248, sponsored by state senators Blaise Ngoglia, a Republican from Spring Hill, would cancel the filings of any political party that supported slavery during the Civil War. The Democratic Party adopted pro-slavery stances in their party platforms, and this bill states that if you have done that in the past, then the Secretary of State shall decertify and get rid of the party. In the controversial bill, if the controversial bill were approved, voters registered with any canceled party would become non-party affiliated voters. It would be interesting to find out if those voters who are now decertified choose to go back to the party now that they know that they were the party that was advocating for the issue of slavery, Ngaglia said. Any canceled party could register again, but the name of the organization must be substantially different from the name of any other party that was previously registered with the department. The proposal is drawing widespread criticism from Democrats. When asked if he thought the bill would get any traction in the upcoming session, Ngaglia said, I guess we're gonna see, aren't we? And that's political news in a nutshell. U.S. Senator Jim Risch, a Republican from Idaho, on Tuesday introduced the Pregnancy Center Security Act, which would provide funding for pregnancy resource centers to better protect themselves against the violent attacks that have taken place since last May, when the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked to the media. Life News counted 250 attacks against pregnancy centers and other pro-life facilities in 2022, with fewer than a handful of arrests reported. On Wednesday, at a hearing of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, Attorney General Merrick Garland was questioned about why the Department of Justice has become so focused on prosecuting pro-lifers on charges of blocking abortion business entrances, but not at all concerned with the ongoing violence at pro-life centers. Garland said the attacks on pro-life organizations happen at night, in the dark, so it's harder to see the suspects on video cameras. A Florida law that protects babies after 15 weeks in the womb remains in effect after a judge in Miami-Dade County denied a request from clergy members for a temporary injunction. Clergy from five religions filed separate lawsuits this past summer, each claiming the law violates the freedom of speech and religion promised in state and federal constitutions. The cases were consolidated with the clergy saying they fear they could be criminally prosecuted if they advise or accompany someone to an abortion. Judge Michael Hansman dismissed that argument, but said the clerics were free to continue the case while the law remains intact. Also this week in Tallahassee, the state capital, attorneys for abortion businesses and an abortionist submitted a brief asking the Florida Supreme Court to block the 15-week law. It's that court that will ultimately decide the, face of the fate of the law. Last week, we reported on an abortion business in Bristol, Virginia, that's being sued for allegedly performing an abortion on a 15-year-old against her will and without her parents' knowledge. Now, the same abortion business, Bristol Women's Health, is at the center of a lawsuit claiming that its owners willfully concealed their plans to perform abortions there. A letter of intent to lease the property said it would be used as a medical clinic for a general family practice. The owners of the property are morally opposed to abortion and said they would not have leased the property had they known the truth about the practice. A hearing is set for April 10th. The abortion facility's owner, Diane Durzis, is an abortion profiteer who closed her abortion mill in nearby Bristol, Tennessee, when that state outlawed most abortions. And she moved her pink house facility from Jackson, Mississippi to Las Cruces, New Mexico, when Roe v. Wade was overturned and Mississippi banned most abortions. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz wants to defund a program that has been providing grants to pregnancy resource centers in the state since 2005. 
But some Democrats who control the House, Senate, and State House in Minnesota have gotten behind the Positive Pregnancies Support Act that would continue funding for centers as long as they are willing to provide abortion referrals. Jill King, executive director of the Lakes Life Care Center in Forest Lake, Minnesota, said she receives 40% of her funding from the state but would not be eligible for grants if forced to provide abortion referrals. A woman who wants an abortion does not need a referral from us. She already knows where to go, King told the news outlet ProPublica. If she comes to us, she's looking for a different option. Jessica Duggar Seewald, whose family life was depicted in the show 19 Kids and Counting, posted a YouTube video over the weekend to say her fifth pregnancy had ended with a miscarriage and that she underwent a DNC to remove her dead baby from her womb. Social media went wild with the story, with pro-aborts insisting Seewald, a pro-life Christian, had an abortion. Seewald then posted a note on her Instagram story to clarify that her baby's heart had stopped beating three weeks before the DNC. There's a world of difference between someone dying and someone being killed, she wrote. But the pro-abortion media stuck to its narrative, with a headline on a Yahoo News story on Tuesday proclaiming Jessica Duggar Seewald had an abortion, even if she won't say the word. Paris Hilton, a young woman who rose to fame by being wealthy, recently disclosed to several news outlets that she and her husband have stockpiled 20 male embryos conceived through in vitro fertilization. Frightened by the pain of childbirth, Hilton used a surrogate to bring one of the embryos to term last month. Now she's undergone, undergoing IVF again in the hope of creating a girl. The Catholic Church condemns IVF and pro-lifers oppose it because the embryos are human beings who are often destroyed when no longer wanted. And finally, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is taking flack for insisting at an interfaith breakfast this week that there is no need for a separation of church and state. When I walk, I walk with God. When I talk, I talk with God. When I put policies in place, I put them in with a godlike approach to them. That's who I am, Adams said during the Tuesday event at the New York Public Library's Central Branch in Manhattan. But it was something else he said that struck us here at Pro-Life Primetime News as particularly ironic. We are destroying our next generation, Adams lamented, without mentioning his own role in that destruction. Last month, New York City began implementing the mayor's plan to distribute 10,000 free abortion pills in community health centers in Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx, literally destroying a portion of the next generation. And that's abortion in the news. Priests for Life wants you to come with us on the road as we minister to the pro-life movement nationwide. We hope it inspires and encourages you as much as the events themselves inspire and encourage us. Priests for Life took part again in this year's Virginia Rally and March for Life on February 1st in Richmond's Capitol Square. It was by far the biggest pro-life advocacy event in the state's history. The focus was on making a statement in support of life that would be heard loud and clear by state legislators. The message of love for unborn children and their mothers was heard by every member of the legislature as they came to Richmond that day during the legislative session. The march itself was led by the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. The event was a collaborative effort undertaken by the March for Life, the Family Foundation, Virginia Catholic Conference, Diocese of Arlington and Richmond, and Virginia Society for Human Life. On February 8th, Father Dennis Wilde, Mark Houck, Pat Stanton, and Pat Mahoney spoke and prayed in front of Planned Parenthood in Philadelphia. This marked Mr. Houck's return to his mission to pray at abortion mills after he was found not guilty of breaching the FACE Act. 
I was blessed to accompany Janet Morana and Teresa Watson to the 2023 Legata Summit in Orlando, Florida. Priests for Life showcased our pro-life products. On February 18th, pro-life leaders, including Frank Pavone, prayed in front of the Orlando Planned Parenthood after a few days of strategy meetings at the Priests for Life Florida headquarters. As you can see, pro-life leaders very rarely take time to rest. Pro-life leader Frank Pavone was with the Silent No More Awareness Campaign at the February 2023 Arizona March for Life. Watch Frank Pavone's talk and the testimonies at priestsforlife.org frontlines and also on our website at prolifeprimetimenews.com. To a group of 25-plus Rachel's Vineyard team members, retreat facilitators, and local therapists, Dr. Teresa Burke, co-founder of Rachel's Vineyard, presented several topics to enhance their skills when encountering participants on a retreat weekend. Janet Morana and Teresa Watson attended a Women's Answer Medical Center banquet on February 25th. Janet was the keynote speaker, and Teresa displayed some of our products. You can listen to Janet's powerful presentation on the websites mentioned previously. You can also buy the books displayed here at prolifeproducts.org. Be sure to mention that you watch Pro-Life Primetime News, and I'll be sure to add a free gift with your order. Just email me at orders at priestsforlife.org. If you have been to any of the events we just shared with you or any other pro-life event that you would like to share with us, please email us your photos and description of the event to mail at priestsforlife.org, and your photos may be featured on a future edition of Pro-Life Primetime News. Thank you for coming with us on the road. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will tune in every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show and all of our broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.